Hi. Uh, I think I've got this. Let me just check for anyone watching. And the video, I, I mean, the, the scheduled time live that I had planned uh, is, wasn't working because of some technical errors. So let me just quickly check if I've got this correctly, if I'm live. So I'm going to be checking in for myself. And let's see here. Uh, I just, good. Just, good. All right. Well, welcome. Um, this is a, a just quickly checking logistics here. Uh, I'll give people some time to come in. Uh, video and live. All right, here I am. Good. And I'll just good. Sorry, I'm a bit late. This is at 7 p.m. This was supposed to be at 7 p.m. And it is now 7.16 uh, Pacific Standard Time. I will just now see if there's something else I need to be paying attention to. Uh, let's see. Uh, I see there are manage to this feature. All right. And sorry about taking this time. Good. So now I'm just going to make this a little bit bigger on my screen, my window that I have here. I have Octubre, which is my neighbor's cat sitting on my lap, and she is purring away. Uh, right. Muy bien. All right, hectic, hectic, hectic week coming ahead for me. I hope everyone is doing well. I'll be reading off my intro because I want to have people who are not uh, subscribers or not members of the What's Left community to know where to find us. Uh, and then I will get into today's topic for today. Uh, so we are uh, what's left, and uh, I'll start off from there, <clears throat> being no formal. <laughs> Andy, uh, co-host, is in Iceland, and Jess is uh, away uh, on a women's uh, festival, where she should be. <laughs> All right, here we go. <clears throat> Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca without co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and writer and teacher Jessica, because they're away, as I said. Uh, we are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. Uh, you can find that link to our site in the episode notes. You can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at uh, uh, jhomie89, but jhomie89 on Twitter, that's with Jess's Twitter handle. And my uh, Instagram is at Don Eduardo Abarca. Again, that is at Don Eduardo Abarca. And I can write that um, for anyone that needs it. You can also find in the episode notes of any of our uh, episodes here, uh, wherever you are on this platform. Now, the reason why I mentioned my Instagram is because today we'll be discussing a sensitive topic that I 
if you find yourself related to uh, the Jehovah's Witness uh, story that I will be sharing today, I invite you to contact me. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Thank you. Right. Well, as I had mentioned, uh, the topic for today will be uh, the Jehovah's Witness story. It's in the, I hope, in the uh, uh, episode, this live uh, story title. I have Octubre with me here. I'm in San Francisco, California, and I am here uh, ready to give this story that I'm not very keen on doing because as anyone knows me, I'm not, um, I don't like doing things on myself. It feels as if I have a lot of attention placed on me and it makes me feel uncomfortable, but, um, here I will be giving uh, my version and share my story for anyone that is interested. Oh, where to begin? I imagine uh, Andy and Jess here asking me questions about starting off with my childhood. <laughs> well, um, so I, I, uh, I have been sharing on what's left for some time the the difference or the how I came to in, into politics or how I have uh, made connections using my religion, uh, especially during this past three years. Uh, and as well, when I talk about uh, any topic, sometimes I'll talk about something I've done in my on my travels or something that I happened to me when I was growing up. And it's inevitable to deny or hide 18 years of my life that I was a strict Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I was un testigo de Jehová. That was the name that I was labeled with since... I was a child, and uh, I guess I can start off with this story even before I, I was born. Uh, as many of you know, I'm Mexican, soy de Mexico. Uh, the story really begins with my grandmother and my mother because uh, that's what I inherited. I inherited the the legacy that they left for me or the religion this that they have wished that I continue on, which unfortunately I am no longer a Jehovah. Well, for them, unfortunately, not for me, because I'm fine where I am. But for them, unfortunately, this is not where the path that they would, my mother thought I would ever take. And it pains her, I know, but she's come to accept it more or less. My grandmother, Felicitas Escobar, uh, was born in el estado de Guerrero, in the state of Guerrero in Mexico. And she uh, lived, uh, she was, uh, she lived in a rural area of Mexico, beautiful uh, Mexican woman with dark hair and uh, uh, very light colored eyes. I forget if they were blue or 
green because my mother's eyes are green and I forget, but I should ask my mother. I kind of forgot now what she had told me because I had once in my, uh, um, I think we were doing in, in science in school once on genetics and we had to write down who in your family has colored eyes and how it comes down to who's, what recessive gene and who has a dominant gene and so forth. And I, rem I remember at that time I asked my mother what the color of my grandmother's eyes was because I ne had never met her. And so my grandmother, Felicitas Escobar, was born in El Estado de Guerrero, um, the daughter, the oldest, the eldest of four. Uh, Felicitas, um, uh, Mauro, uh, Bonifacio, and Hermelinda. And the third, the fourth one was a half sister because my great, after my grandmother's mother died, my great grandmother, uh, my great grandfather remarried. And so, if I may. Go, 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 go. My grandmother was, my grandmother was a very strong woman, but she was also a very vulnerable woman. At the time, people were working out in the fields and they were doing a lot of hard work and she had cut the eyes of the village. It was very, she was a very beautiful woman. And my grandfather, uh, older than her, had took a notice or taken an, an eye on her and he had uh, kidnapped her and uh, raped her. And so it was at this time that uh, that people, if you were if you were unclean or if you had consummated, then you were. I think that's the word. I don't have just here to verify that's the correct word. But if you had done that, then then you were not allowed to. Uh, well, you were most encouraged to continue your life with the person who had already kidnapped you and had come already unclean with. You were to marry at that time. And that's what happened to my grandmother. I say the story that very beginning because it was those events that I think psychologically damaged my grandmother to the point where she had sought refuge in some sort of truth or religion later in life. And it was a very powerful time. Uh, uh, um, not powerful time. It was a very uh, pivotal, like, like these major psychological damages that had happened to her, uh, I, it was the force for why she had sought out any sort of truth. Um, and so when my grandmother uh, had was basically under duress, had to go live with my grandfather, Abimael Abarca, uh, who still lives and I have a relationship with, it's not a, like a grandfather, I'll go over your home kind of relationship, but it is a relationship that I have. Uh, it, it's a distant one, but he comes in, he comes to the USA, just like I do, uh, back and forth. Most of my family are, uh, my immediate family are documented. They can they have double nationality, uh, which for many reasons I could share that experience, but we go back and forth. We're kind of families of the border. We, we go back and forth and he, uh, he has a home in the in the greater Bay Area, and so I 
and he also has a home in Guerrero. And so I have as well uh, visited him many times. Uh, he doesn't talk much about this story with me, and I imagine it's because of uh, just how the times have changed and the perception about women have changed. So obviously his story doesn't fit into this larger context of the, what the world house, they would see something like this now. Um, but he had, <clears throat> he had my grandmother impregnated and they moved to the city, to Mexico City for another life. And without trying to make a very long story, my grandmother was uh, pregnant and had seven children and a few that had miscarried before uh, her seven children. And my grandmother at that time, she was towards her seventh child, sixth, seventh child. She had really sought out to find something that could give her this uh, fulfilling life. And she had sought it in many different ways. She had done witchery. She had done uh, gone to other religions, Catholicism. She had this spiritual yearning for a desire to a desire for uh, to be fulfilled spiritually, to fill this void within her. Uh, she did not know how to care or love in a very affectionate way uh, to my mother uh, and to my mother's siblings, my uncles and aunts. And it was um, difficult for her to have that one-on-one -on -one relationship when they were a lot of siblings and she had to go to work and she put my mother <laughs> the eldest of the seven, to to work as well. Not work at a labor place, but to take care of her siblings. It was after some time that when my grandmother had been visited by Jehovah's Witnesses, she began to study being a Jehovah's Witness. And for her, it made sense. I imagine that the spiritual, the spiritual, uh, the spiritual bondship or the community that one receives that I will later share about my own personal life is what also drew her to it because my grandmother was very isolated, unloved by, or I don't know, maybe my aunts might think differently, but from my my grandfather's, my grandfather's side. And uh, it was a hard it was hard for her. It was very hard for her. Uh, and in the community of Jehovah's Witnesses, she was embraced. And so were my aunts and uncles, her children. They loved my, <laughs> my aunts and uncles. It was a very strong community. And to this day, my mother remembers those Jehovah's Witness brothers and sisters. And that's how all of this began. I, 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 most Mexicans are Catholics. I'm not, I was not raised a Catholic. Uh, sometimes I, I don't have some of the similar experiences that other Mexicans have because of my double nationality, uh, as well as because I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. These things sometimes in this country doesn't give me the experience or be able to empathize or or to sort of say that I have also had those experiences. For example, quinceañeras, which is a very big part in tradition 
of Mexican culture. On my father's side, I had gone uh, to many of the festivities that Catholics celebrate, uh, uh, so for example, uh, for Christmas, uh, Las Posadas, or uh, Dia de Muertos, when my dad would take me to go see the festivities. But on my mother's side, these things were not uh, were not um, entertained because uh, my that's this is the genesis of of this story. It is begins with my grandmother. She when she had decided to become a Jehovah's Witness and gets baptized uh, there and after, I was already the decision about who I whatever child after would be a Jehovah's Witness or at least have some form of connection to the Jehovah's Witness life. Even if my uncles were not in the truth, the Jehovah's Witness religion, we're all tied on this side of the family. The my my uh, Abarca Escobar side, which is the maternal uh, family side of me, that we're kind of uh, my immediate family is tied to the Jehovah's Witness life, and it's not it's inescapable in this small circle to discuss anything other than the truth. Um. For our listeners, I'm saying in quotation marks because obviously I don't think it is the truth. Uh, when my grandmother, uh, after some time, she, uh, when she had her seventh child, interestingly enough, before she had become a Jehovah's Witness, she had gone to some spiritual um, white witch or someone who had read her poem, someone who had practiced witchcraft, and they had predicted that after her seventh child, she would uh, she would die, she would pass away. This was sort of a prophecy that was given, not like some biblical prophecy, but it was a it was a future a fortune uh, teller that would describe uh, or would lay out her her future. Well, she didn't die immediately, but she died more or less three days after her seventh child from complications after the birth. Uh, and I, at this time, don't want to delve into all of those details because it is a lot and I don't want to make this live stream more than an hour. Uh, but it was, it was, it was hard on the family and she did not take a blood transfusion, which is a Jehovah's Witness rule. It's a doctrine that is taught that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are not to take blood transfusions. Therefore, my grandmother died of complications and she denied blood transfusion uh, and that and left seven children behind. My mother being the eldest, my mother was 11 years old and it was hard on everyone. The reason why I think my mother, now talking about my mother, not to my grandmother, but my grandmother, my mother, I think, still holds this psychological attachment to the religion is because of the following, because after this whole thing, everything that my mother went through, this is exactly the reason why she is to, to this day. I believe it is a more psychological reason to stay in the religion rather than an intellectual one, because no matter how many times I have tried in the past as an adolescent to debate, to discuss, to show proof, to share what I have, I, I will be sharing some of the reasons that I, or major issues I have with Jehovah's Witnesses. My mother cannot hear it because to, to, to 
to attempt to reason out this doctrine is to almost um, disrespect or to uh, abandon her mother, which she lost at 11. So it is not easy for her to just dismiss her mother and to forget her mother. It is like cutting off her mother from her life. So I understand it now in my 30s, but when I was an adolescent, it was very hard for me to, or in my 20s, it was very hard for me to have these discussions with my mother because I was very combative and came with facts. And my mother came at me with an emotional response. And it was a lot of clashing during the time that I would try to have her understand something. And she, I think we created a wedge between us for some time. And it did, I, I did exhaust my mother a lot. <laughs> I feel awful now. Um, so I'm. So here's my mother at 11 years old, and she um, lost her mother, and and she was left to raise her own siblings. But in this neighborhood, my grand, my great grandfather, my great grandfather, the father of my grandmother, uh, he was trying to raise them because he had stepped in, uh, my grandfather, Abimael Abarca, was working as a butcher and as, uh, like, he would, I, I, the last I heard of this was, was what I was told, that he had also was working as a coyote, which brought people over um, to and fro the U.S.-American-Mexican border. And, um, and he was living in California as my family, my mother and her siblings were mourning. The Jehovah's Witness community at that time had stepped in. They had paid for expenses for the funeral. They had bought uh, things for the children. They had uh, even considered separating the children because they were seven they were separating but they were considering separating the children and adopting them into their own homes so they could raise them i think that would have been the best thing thinking back uh, thinking uh, over this with my mother because we had discussed this uh, she had shared this, her story with me before but my great grandfather the, the father of my grandmother felicitas had said no <laughs> my Grandchildren are not uh, puppies to be um, separated in this way. And he decided to put them in an internado, which is like an orphanage. It is an orphanage. There's a lot of orphan children. But the word, I guess, internado I, is also means um, boarding school. And so I guess I, I'm not trying to confuse boarding school with um, an orphanage. It was an orphanage. It was an orphanage in Morelos, if I'm not mistaken. And it was there that the kids were separated. I, I, I really don't understand why my great-grandfather had made this decision instead of allowing a Jehovah, several Jehovah's Witness families to adopt the children. It was basically the same thing. You place these children into an orphanage. 
my aunts and uncles uh, were separated by age, but the boys say, uh, my uncles, that they had also some intergenerational, which isn't always the wisest thing when you are in in an orphanage. And so there was a lot of things that they were exposed to, a lot of um, practices that were not, uh, that are not appropriate for children, such as the physical abuse or the, the yelling, the, the sort of a verbal and psychological emotional abuse. I think those are the things that um, my mother had really, as an older child, she had seen was not the best for her and her siblings. Uh, she was a rebellious child as well, which is, I think, the impetus for why they had sent her away as well to the uh, internado, to the orphanage. And so my grand, my mother, excuse me, my mother had written a letter to her father in California. She had sent it over to the family that was living in Mexico City, and they had sent it to my grandfather. And it was a long lecture that my mother still remembers a lot of the words to about the abandonment and the how irresponsible my grandfather had been. And uh, it was for that reason and for many other reasons that he had come back from California and had decided to round up his children from the orphanage and take them over to the USA. About that time, my mother was 14 or 15 years old. And it wasn't my mother's intention to go to the USA. She was an adolescent. She did not even, it was not in her world to conceive of the idea of going to the USA. This was not something she had wanted. Um, I know one of my aunts had run away before the trip to go to the USA, to go to California. And she had a beating for it. <laughs> It was unfortunately not, it was, it was sad. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't encouraged or they weren't given options or, or soothed in any way. They were just told and they were going to go. I think for my mother, it was about being together as a family that she wanted. She didn't so much want to be with my grandfather because he was very abusive. He was physically uh, violent, but it was my mother's importance that the kids stayed together. Even in her adolescence, she was thinking about this. So they had come to California. They, my grandfather brought them to California, where I am currently at, <laughs> and brought them to San Francisco, California. My grandfather had another family here in San Francisco, California. He lived with another woman and that woman had children. And so in a small place in San Francisco, California, on, if anyone comes to San Francisco, right on 17th Street and South Anes, in a home upstairs. I don't remember the number of the home, but it's on the very corner. 
that is where my mother and her siblings were. They were raised in that home. This is during the 80s. This was a different time from how it is in San Francisco today, where there were uh, there was a lot of prostitution on that street. There was a lot of drug dealing. There was there were gangs at that time. Very violent time in the Mission District. People did not go to the Mission District today. The Mission District is a cultural, beautiful place to go to, but it is gentrified today. And it, at that time, it was the one of the cheapest place to, places to live. Now it's one of the most expensive places to live in San Francisco. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this is the time where uh, my mother is growing into herself and she did not have any knowledge of English. She didn't, she just didn't know what, it was a cultural shock. It was a very big cultural shock. And so uh, the children were placed in school. She went to school. At first, my grandfather had told her to work, but she had heard uh, from other people here that, that she was supposed to be in school, that it, the laws were different. So she had uh, said that to her father, my grandfather, uh, I have to be in school. So she went to school. And it was uh, it was at Newcomer by Masonic uh, in San Francisco. I'm giving out sort of this uh, these streets. If anyone wants to know, if they come here, Jessica from What's Left. Uh, I've taken her to certain spots and given her my personal narrative on this, and and uh, showed her the landmarks of these important places that were that are meaningful for me, and. Uh, in the newcomer school, she went, and then she, she was transferred over to Mission High School, uh, and that's where she graduated from high school. She had also, um, uh, no, well, she met my father because not at the school, but she had met my father through another family member. Uh, so let's see if I can try to explain this. My Mother's, my, my mother's uncle and my father's aunt were married. They're not blood related. And their nephews, and their nephew, my father, and my uncle's niece. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> my mother's uncle and my father's aunt were married so therefore they met but they're not blood related we just married into one family and another family married with each other and in this case my father and my mother uh uh have an uncle and an aunt that are married together my goodness how complicated and i apologize in this live stream otherwise i would be editing all of this uh for anyone that is listening i apologize this is the reason why i should edit all of my videos <laughs> uh Let's see. So I'm I'm thankful for anyone that is watching and you can you can chat in the chat box and ask me any questions. I'd be happy to answer. I appreciate folks tuning in. I try not to pay attention to it because then I get nervous and I try to think that I'm 
recording on my own. Anyhow, so my mother grew up right on 17th and South Vanessa in San Francisco, California for her adolescent years. And as she got older and graduated from high school and later met my father, uh, she decided to be a Jehovah's Witness because that was the religion that she was left with. So therefore, it was the it was the by default that she thought that's what I'll do next. I'm not sure again, like I said, if this was the religion that she had chosen intellectually because she'd reasoned out by the Bible scriptures or had read. No, it was not like that for her. Her her her. It was just. Her mother had left this religion, so therefore she had also decided to become a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, and when my mother at 18 years old was kicked out and with my father, they, they were homeless on the streets of San Francisco. They didn't have places to sleep. They slept in random places uh, in this city. And uh, they, my father came here at age 16 or 17 years old, as well, pushed by his own mother to come to this country, uh, not by choice, but by pressure, his, her, his mother. So they had then met here and they lived at 18 years old, wherever they could find a place to sleep and eat. And they loved each other very dearly. I, every time I tell the story of my father and my mother, they had the most romantic love story that I could tell, and I'd love to write it one day, but I'm also feeling pressured by time. And by the viewers watching this, I don't wish to take more of anyone's time. So I'll tell that story another time, but it is, it was a beautiful story because my father really uh, took in uh, my mother's brothers like if they were his own brothers. And they'd go out to the parks, go to Ocean Beach or Baker Beach, and go and uh, out for walks. Uh, my mother didn't have a lot of money at the time. I told Jessica once when we were walking in the Mission District on 24th, on 24th and Folsom, I think it was, yeah, 24th and Folsom, there was a restaurant uh, where they sold, I think their specialty was chicken, roasted chicken and all this other stuff, chicken. And my mother had walked in there begging for food because uh, they were poor. They were poor in, in this country. They, they didn't have a lot of money. And uh, so every time I walk through the 20, 24th district, 24th Street district at that mission, I get a lot of uh, history just flashing in my mind because I think of all of the, the stories that my mother has shared with me, the gangs, uh, on 24th, uh, the apartments where my mother had lived and when she could afford and the jobs that she had taken. Uh, it was it was a hard time, but also she was young and it was possible for her and she was full of uh, life. And <laughs> I'll, I wish I could post some pictures. And um, so as she got older, she decided to study the Bible with Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's when I, uh, later on, was conceived. I was uh, conceived. My mother went back to Mexico with my father. And they were at my grandmother's house, my father's mother. 
they'd also go visit my great-grandfather. And we started attending the Jehovah's Witness meetings since I was a child, since I was practically born. My mother had gone to, in the beginning, a, a meeting or so sporadically in Mexico. And, and then over time, she became serious about it. I remember as a child, now we're talking about me and what I was born into. I remember as a child, the, the, the Jehovah's Witness community that I had uh, growing up in Mexico. I could remember just the brothers and sisters that were part of my life, the well, how well-spoken they were, the friends I had uh, there, and as well as just my cousins who, uh, in specific, Perla and Onise, who were around my age, would also play with me. I have those wonderful memories and pictures. I, I didn't know anything other than the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I didn't know anything other than the Jehovah's Witness community. It was just the family that I grew up into. Slowly, I noticed though that I, my mother had isolated herself into this community. And when we were in this country, uh, in California, then it was the Jehovah's Witnesses that she had also uh, had an attachment to when she'd come to this country for the first time. She found the congregation and then they had remembered her. And so they kept inviting her over to the meetings. Um, we don't call it to oh, going over to church. We say to meetings, you just go to the meetings, almost a las reuniones. And uh, so those same brothers and sisters, those Jehovah's Witnesses, were later on in life still a part of her life as I, after I was born. And specifically, I'm thinking of two sisters that were very loving towards my mother and my family, uh, Thierry and Anita, who just were full of love to share with my mother and us growing up. Here's where I guess I'll to start analyzing some of the Jehovah's Witnesses practices. When you grow up as a Jehovah's Witness, the community is so tight knit. They become your aunts. I even find myself saying almost uh, my aunt or my spiritual grandmother. Uh, it is not, it's, it's a very, very close-knit community, not like the Mormons, I feel. In a very different way, we are only to relate or interact with one another, and anyone else is considered a worldly person. So if you interact with them, you will be most likely uh, told several times to stop. They shouldn't. They'll be advising you, you and to be careful because they are worldly and you could get influenced by them. When I was growing up in two countries now, because when my mother got amnesty in the 80s, she had her citizenship uh, so she could now then be in two countries. Uh, most people might remember this, the Reagan years, uh, 
is what they gave amnesty to immigrants um, if you qualified. And my mother did. And so did my father. So my parents became citizens and uh, and they then passed on that citizenship to me. And they I was able to then obviously be in two countries now. They were having that freedom and without repercussions. So I I had two major families, but they two but they but they felt the same way because Jehovah's Witnesses internationally, it just feels like you slip right into the religion or the the, the meetings when you are uh, studying the same Bible, uh, you have the same literature, the same teachings. This is the Bible, well, not specifically this one, but this is the Bible I grew up with, this translation. And so we had to read it from start to finish. I remember going through this as a kid and having to read some of the most difficult chapters and verses of this Bible. And that is how I learned how to read. I, I literally learned uh, from Jehovah's Witnesses literature that supported you to be able to eventually transition over to reading the Bible. Imagine me at age 15 and my mother would, at age 15, excuse me, age five, I, I, that's the age I had learned, and picking out verses and going through them and having to learn how to read uh, the Bible verses. I didn't uh, understand a lot of what I had read, but there was a lot of literature that supported the Bible uh, understanding. The, so, for example, we had a book called uh, Las Historias Biblicas, which is my book of Bible stories, and those were very strong stories about uh, Noah's Ark and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Enoch and Isaiah, as well as uh, Moses. Uh, so you had these vivid stories told to you in simple form, but with the Bible verses as reference. And then we had to go and they had these illustrations because Jehovah's Witnesses as, as an organization, they produce a lot of literature. They produce a lot of literature, and you're told to read this literature uh, uh, only, and you're not allowed to see any other sources. So this is this is the very beginning of of it all, and I loved going to the meetings because you attend and you have friends and you. I was a I was a leader of my friends. I had uh, a tight knit community of friends that were my age. To this day, we're in the same we're the same generation. I don't have much contact with them because uh, many of them have split. We've parted. We've we've moved. We've just gone on our separate ways in Mexico as well. Same thing, except for my cousins who I still stay in contact with, and they have also slowly left the religion but uh i know one of my friends who i will not name is still um in the religion and he is um uh, i guess he's happily married i'm not sure i've never spoken to him since this is the the part where i think when i get nostalgic and thinking about my childhood i i think about how many of those Jehovah's Witness children had a difficult time, just like I did, in growing up as a witness because of all the restrictions and because of the faith 
and the convictions you have, you have to have a very strong mind. I remember being in school and, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses do not pledge allegiance. In this country, you do. And in Mexico, you also pledge allegiance. Very different um, song. And, and, uh, and here, I remember being, because I went to a school and I was just learning English. And I had to keep my ha hand over my, my heart. And I put it down and I didn't say anything. And there was this teacher who came because we were all queued up watching the procession of the flag and uh, declaring our allegiance. <laughs> but the teacher came over and she put her my hand right on my uh, heart. And I took it down and she put it right back up and I took it down and she put it right back up and she took me to the front of the whole school. And she had me there and she told me to pledge allegiance. And I had, I think I, I blocked everything. I don't remember what happened after that. I don't remember if I had my heart on after. I believe I didn't. But I remember just being hot and red with shame, but also proud. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> Very strange feelings. I had this pride that I had taken a stand for Jehovah and that I was a very faithful person and I was being persecuted and taking a stand against the government. <laughs> but I also felt the shame, the embarrassment uh, of people's eyes staring at me. It caused me a lot of uh, insecurity and I appreciate the one thing I did have is that I had two very strong parents, my mother and my father, who showered us both with love. And so I didn't have any issues growing up as far as the insecurity of not having the love and affection of parents. My father uh, was a very involved father for the first 10, 11 years of my life, as well as my brother. Uh, excuse me, my, mo my mother, excuse me, I'm thinking of my brother's experience because he, he might say differently, he might think differently from how I feel. But my mother as well was very loving. Uh, but it, we had some issues as well. I think because my parents are very young, uh, my father was having difficulties. He was, as I always say, people, I tell people, if you want to think of how my father was, think of, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, the film, <laughs> because my father was a very loving, uh, charming, and uh, divertido, just fun, comical uh, parent. But he did not know how to hold a job. He was always freelancing here and there, small jobs, and picking us up from school. Uh, making us do crazy things such as putting me in front of a, the steering wheel and having me pretend drive. But obviously that's illegal because I was supposed to be in the back buckled up in the car. And one time I remember uh, thinking I knew how to drive. And so I was in his truck once as he was going before school, he was going to take me to school. And I, uh, 
I turned on the vehicle and everything. And I said, look, I can drive. And the, and the truck went right into the garage of the house. Uh, <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, uh, it was um, a lot of fun. But my mother, of course, she did not um, think it was gracioso. She didn't think it was funny at all because she, being the responsible mother that she was, she decided that this was not the way she wanted to, to be raised. And the stress of life, they had begun to have arguments. And my father, I think he, because of his separation from his family and being alone and responsibility at an early age, he began doing drugs. He just, at, at first he had just experimented with weed and he had drank alcohol and began being a heavy drinker and hung out with the wrong kind of crowd. And he just thought it was fun. I remember he even took me a few times to, uh, at that time it was Army Street and here in San Francisco. And it it wasn't, it says a Chavez now, it says a Chavez now. And, uh, and I met his friends and my dad became sort of just, it was unstable for him. It was not, he was not the kind of, uh, he was not the kind of uh, serious father that he needed to be, I guess, or I don't know, whatever that means. Eventually, though, not to get too, too, too caught up in that web because I want to tell the story of my Jehovah's Witness life. They divorced in 1998. Uh, many discussions, many fights led to it. Um, a few times led to physical violence, which affected me. Um, you know, I, I love them both very much, but they just did not know how to maturely handle their relationship. They never really hit us. My parents were very loving towards us. They just had the issues amongst themselves, adults. And eventually uh, when they bought a house in San Francisco at the time, it was possible because my father, he was building and doing construction work and learning from this Polish architect here in San Francisco how to remodel homes and and build uh, nice, beautiful kitchens with tiles and and furnish homes beautifully uh, and having to remodel a lot of the uh, Victorian homes here in San Francisco. My father had these skills and my mother had the, the savings that they had and uh, and so they decided to buy a house in San Francisco and it was a shitty looking house, <laughs> but my father with his bare hands, he had remodeled it beautifully. In 1997, in November, 1997, uh, my schizophrenic uncle, my uncle with, who had schizophrenia at that time, um, who now is, has passed in Paz Descanse, uh, he, he burnt, he had heard voices in, he had burnt the house down, basically. And a year after we had lived in another, we we had we didn't have a place to go. So we stayed in the hotels and that didn't work. So we went back to Mexico. And when paperwork got settled, uh, then we came back <clears throat> and we rented a home here. Amborica. It's near Holloway, up by 
San Francisco State University. I think it would be considered Ingleside, if I'm not mistaken, neighborhood. And that's where uh, the fights got intense and my parents divorced. The divorce caused my father to fall into a very deep depression and he began doing heavy drugs and I had no longer seen him. And I think my father, now that I see him and talk to him, my father now tells me that he was trying to keep me away from that life because he did not want to raise or have his children see him in the state that he was, having lost his home, having lost his family, being away from his family back home in Mexico. It was disastrous. And my mother pulled it off, tried to do her best as a single parent. Uh, and we were being raised as a Jehovah's Witness. So I will return back to our Jehovah's Witness life and what that was like for me. Um, I, when I, at, at a time in my childhood where I was between two countries and growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, I felt very much loved because of my parents, because of my parents' families, because of my Jehovah's Witness family in Mexico and my Jehovah's Witness family here in California, San Francisco, California. So I felt a lot of love at that time. You know, it was very strong. Maybe I didn't always feel very secure at school because of my English, because of the bullying that happened sometimes, uh, because of my faith. But I felt at home, showered and in abundance of love. So the first 10 years of my life, I, I have really nothing to complain about in that regards because I don't feel I had the experience of sometimes some some of my friends they tell me that it was hard for them in the beginning I think going from that to going to um, uh, my tween life and I think it was it it was hard because it then I didn't have my father I didn't have uh, we moved to another congregation uh, and the friends that I had back home and my cousins, they moved as well. So I became, and also the family, my father's family had been cut off because I'm Eduardo Manuel Sanchez Abarca. So the Sanchez, which is my father's side, my mother no longer had a relationship with my father's family. So I felt as well cut off from that family. Um, and it just became a small world of my mother, my brother, and myself. And I didn't, I don't know, I was trying to navigate it. And that drew me closer to being a, a good Jehovah's Witness boy. And eventually I got baptized at age 12 years old. That's, that's the age that even Jesus Christ was beginning to preach and talk about and if you, anyone remembers, Jehovah's Witness uh, says always love to talk about Jesus and his story. But Jesus at 12 years old, when his parents, um, Joseph and Mary, had taken him to Jerusalem, to the temple, they had lost him on one of those. Um, I forget why they had come. Now I forgot. <laughs> what was the reason? I think it was, well, I don't want to say something I, I, I don't remember very well. But when they had taken him to the temple, they had lost him. And he, the, when they had found him, they had found him with talking to Sarsalotes. Sarsalotes? I don't know how to say Sarsalotes. 
they're like priests. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'll find the word. Um, and so I never forget he was 12 years old. And that was around the time that I had also felt inspired to get baptized. Baptism in Jehovah's Witness life is a very conscientious, intentional thing. You are to pray before you get baptized. Make your decision with God first before you declare you want to get baptized. And then you are baptized in, a, in an assembly. If you know these assemblies, because I know here in San Francisco, California, they, they, they people stream out of the Gau Palace, which are large gatherings of Jehovah's Witnesses. And all over the world, international, they will take over stadiums. In Mexico, we went to one that was huge uh, for a, a large audience. And you see with binoculars just how many people sit around this platform in the very center. And people, uh, certain designated uh, speakers give these long talks. It was... <clears throat> It was an experience for me to get baptized. I did feel pressured. I did love God. I did want to dedicate my life as a Jehovah's Witness. But now looking back in my 30s, you know, I don't agree that any child should make a decision like that ever in their life. Uh, it is like telling a child, you can drive here's take a license i think that there are obviously the brain is still growing and you have a you have you your your the this part of the ceo of your brain uh the prefrontal cortex is still developing which controls how you make decisions mature decisions in your life and i think that i just felt an emotional impulse to want to get baptized uh, I said at that time it was a spiritual awakening, a spiritual time. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's so. Um, but I got baptized at age 12, which later proved to be a mistake. I, I, uh, I say that because at age 14, I was reproved. And you get two disciplines as a Jehovah's Witness, you're either uh, disfellowshipped, which is completely removed from interacting with the whole congregation. You can only attend the meetings and listen, but you must arrive after everyone has seated and leave after, leave immediately before everyone gets up out of their seats. Being reproved just marks you in the congregation as someone that has done something, but you're repentant of because of it. And you're just sort of marked in the congregation, told it to everyone, <laughs> such an embarrassment about the importance of not associating yourself to this person. I, I really didn't, didn't, I, <laughs> I see how it affected me as an adolescent to be um, reproved now. It was very hard uh, because, because I had loved 
my community very much. And every time I went back to Mexico, because we'd spend long summers in my country, every time I went back to Mexico, it was sort of hiding me. It was hiding me away from, from my family and friends. We could not say why I was reproved. My mother was embarrassed that, to say that I was reproved. It was very shameful. Sometimes I'd be in a situation, we'd go visit back home and we'd be at lunch and all the men were not around. I was the only, the oldest male and baptized. And there was, there were my aunt and friends, Jehovah's Witness friends. And they looked at me as if, come on, aren't you going to pray? And I remember my mother stepping in quickly and covering her hair and say, I will pray <laughs> because she didn't want me to explain away why I could not pray anymore for this, uh, for the gathering or before eating. So that was tough for me. And as well as the whole confession process of what I had done, I will state, and I don't mind people who might listen to this at some time, they could, they could always, uh, I don't care anymore. I basically fornicated at 14. Uh, it was, it was not expected. I didn't even know I, I had, I, I, I it was unplanned. It was just something that had happened and, and I was reproved for it. But as a goody two shoes, goody two shoes, I think that's the expression. I, I went and told uh, the elders which are the highest like priesthood of the congregation over time i thought i would be reinstated but i was kept for two years reproved imagine the isolation i had felt since i was 14 14 and 15. that was tough for me there was a visiting uh superintendent i think that's what they call them uh traveling superintendent uh, and he had suggested, he said to me, you would do well going off to another congregation on your own, away from this congregation. I had been bullied. I had been told things uh, as a Jehovah's Witness uh, adolescent in this congregation. And he told me, go, go to the English congregation. They will be more understanding. Sometimes the Spanish here in San Francisco, sorry, I'm not clear with the country. Um, sometimes the Spanish language congregation had too many former evangelists, former Catholics, and the culture is very rural. They, they, they have a lot of shaming, and sometimes they are more lenient towards one sin over another. For example, if you steal or if you're an alcoholic or if you have, uh, if, if, if you're gay or these things are sometimes seen as different levels of sins, according to some people, although that's not the case on the Bible because it's listed as one sin. These are the th things that are sins in the Bible, as it's mentioned, I forget in, I think it's in Corinthians, first Corinthians. And, uh, what I had done was probably more sinful on, to some of the elders' uh, eyes 
than someone else who had got drunk because culturally it's more acceptable that, oh, you just got drunk, whatever. And so this superintendent, this traveling superintendent that's overseas, or I think it's called overseer, that oversees several congregations came and said, go to the English congregation, see if it does something for you, a cultural shift, cultural change. And so I did. I went to a congregation here. A called Portola. That's that's the one. Portola congregation. And I had met some wonderful uh Jehovah's Witnesses there. And I stayed for a year when I had decided I wanted to go surf in another congregation. And I had gone to an ASL congregation for the deaf. And that's where I had learned American Sign Language. <laughs> Prior to that, because I, I feel like I'm not giving context, I, I was just looking through my album. And when I was in Mexico, because oh, I had spent summers over in Mexico, they, they, they were, there were Jehovah's Witnesses sisters who knew me as a child, and they were serving in a deaf community, learning MSL, Mexican Sign Language. And so when we went to go visit them again, they had invited us over to the Mexican Sign Language congregation that was all in sign and there was an interpreter. So my exposure to sign language, uh, which I should tell you folks, is different in every country, right? There, Colombia. When I was in Colombia last year, the sign language in Colombia is different from the Mexican Sign Language, different from the U.S. American Sign Language, different from the French Sign Language, different from... The British Sign Language, the British Sign Language, for example, this is this is uh, uh, the vowels A E I O U in British Sign Language, and in uh, U.S. American Sign Language is A E I O U. So you have a different way of uh, signing uh, letters, and I uh, so I I was just I guess really uh, intrigued and and wanted to serve the deaf community because of my friends back home in Mexico. And I was learning Mexican sign language. When I'd come back to the USA to continue my studies, I didn't keep up with it. But during this time that I had transferred over to the English congregation, I had met people who had told me that there was an American sign language congregation. And that I remember back in Mexico from experience that I wanted to serve in a sign language congregation. So I had uh, started to attend three different congregations on Sundays. I went with my mother and my brother to the Spanish language congregation. I would then go to the English language congregation and I still went to the American sign language congregation. I was 15 around this time. When we went to Europe, I think I, I abandoned the idea of going to the Spanish language congregation and going to the French language congregation. That was another idea that I had had because of our trip to France. My mother had taken us at this time back now in my home life. Um, my mother, after several um, going out with several men from different Jehovah's Witness congregations, she had finally met uh, a Jewish Mexican. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure uh, how Jewish 
that's somewhat debatable. But he was a and uh, and he shared with me his heritage. So uh, I always say Jewish Mexican because he had a uh, a very large family of different uh, uh, heritage of different background. Uh, in Mexico, there are a lot of people from Syria, from the Middle East. There are people from other countries, and then they have children, and they keep inheriting this, like this inheritance. There's heritage continues, uh, but even though they're all Mexican, and so he, he, um, I don't know if I want to say his name, but my mother was married to um, uh, this to her, her husband who her at that time and it wasn't a very it was not a very good marriage so we would escape I, either going back home or at this time now when i was 15 we we would go to europe in france the 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 sharing of or the the uh the gatherings or the, excuse me the meetings excuse me the meetings Forgetting the terms that Jehovah's has used, the meetings in other languages intrigued me, and I wanted to learn other languages. So, when we came back to the USA, uh, I decided to pick up French. I picked up French. I picked up uh, American Sign Language, and I decided to stick to American Sign Language, and I developed my language skills there. I never went to school. But to this day, I still. Uh, no sign language because of that experience and maybe in the future I will talk about that in depth but for now I I don't want to sign the whole video now <laughs> um for viewers I was just signing away uh, for listeners excuse me I was just signing away uh, and it was there that I developed other community and and another family, another chosen family of Jehovah's Witnesses. The the whole experience now now that I've shared just this journey, um, was hard on me regarding. Uh, I said this in a previous two episodes ago, regarding the relationships I wanted to build with other people because. Like I said, as a Jehovah's Witness, you are not encouraged to you are not encouraged to to make friends outside of this bubble. And I didn't have friends at school. I had classmates that I was very friendly to, and maybe I now looking back, I will consider them to be friends. Now we're still in communication through social media, but. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go just hang out with them. And I wanted to have more friends, but, and I wanted to do more things in the world because I loved activism. So I did things sort of under the radar. For example, the 2003 uh, school walkouts on to the, uh, the protest against the war of Iraq on Bush's time, I went to it, massive in San Francisco. Massive, massive, massive protest out in downtown, and I had gone to it, and it given me another, it given me an opportunity to experience what the politics of the left were, 
and to take a stand and to involve yourself into causes that are greater than your local thing. It's to, to take stances on worldwide issues such as against war or uh, to start to understand what capitalism is and, uh, and what are other socialist countries? Uh, what are they doing? So I think looking at Cuba and Venezuela as, an, as a Latino growing up, and most of the media having demonized those countries back home in Mexico, uh, suddenly I began to question why we were demonizing those countries and Russia and uh, why we were going to these wars, such as for oil. These things were not things I explored as a Jehovah's Witness. We explored, we explored um, Bible truths, which in itself were difficult. And those were my issues where Jehovah's Witnesses because you were not allowed to understand the Bible truths, quotation marks, because you were only allowed to look at certain literature and only the, at that time they were beginning to develop the website for Jehovah's Witnesses and you were only allowed to read from the website or anything Bible referenced from the Bible. And I had to make a list here of some of the things that were difficult for me I uh, that really made it there are that made it certain I this religion is a hypocritical religion like Catholics like like uh, uh, other denominations I don't want to name because I, I don't want to make this about others I, I really want to just criticize I, I could say the Mormons and everyone else but this is the reason why I, I, I was some of the things that for me were not making sense. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, would go and retract and flip flop on many of the things they had said previously. For example, uh, their predictions on when the end of the times would come in the seventies, and there are many publications where they had said that they that the the world was coming to an end. And Jehovah's Witnesses had sold their homes, had prepared their lives, and it did not come. They got their information wrong and their prediction wrong. And there were also claims uh, of, well, if anyone knows any, any, if you know Jehovah's Witness religion, you know very well that the UN the United Nations is seen as an enemy. Uh, in Revelation, they discuss a lot about the harlot, a lot about uh, uh, the harlot being the world religions and the dominant force of, one of the dominant forces is the UN, the United Nations. Jehovah's Witnesses were a member for 10 years a, as a as an NGO as part of the UN, which Jehovah's is always condemned and always criticized, and that was a hypocritical thing about them that I did not like. And the fact that the Jehovah's Witnesses religion as itself was created by Russell, this this man in the 1900s that had been enlightened because he came out of 
those Bible students uh, reform and decided to create his own religion, uh, it doesn't, to me, it's not any different from how the Mormons created their religion as well. I deeply have, I have a deep respect for many of the brothers and sisters that are still in the religion who have a, um, who have deep faith. And I don't think they are arrogant. As I was discussing this with someone today on the phone, I don't think that the humble brothers and sisters and Jehovah's Witnesses are arrogant. I find this whole religion to be arrogant in itself, not the people who are being used, but the but the organization in itself, because they claim to be the sole truth and everyone else is wrong and everyone else will die and everyone else in an Armageddon, they will die based on God's judgment. And only 144,000 can go to heaven. What a specific number. <laughs> so um, that was some of the things that I had, I had questioned and did not like it. You aren't allowed as a Jehovah's Witness to read up any other literature to go and search up apostate information because uh, that would be against the Bible. That would because apostates are speak against God, against Jehovah. And so if you look up other literature, you are on that path. There's a good site for people. Um, I recommend it. JW jwfacts.com and I learned about it through uh, uh, Lloyd Evans who is a YouTuber and he has a great channel amazing channel I learned a lot from Lloyd Evans uh, let's see just quick, quickly clicking here just to see if it's the right one yes Lloyd Evans and he is an extra host witness writer and activist and uh, he does a lot of videos on Jehovah's Witnesses, which have helped me to just get over my life as a witness because it really becomes ingrained in you and you're indoctrinated and you become this. It's a cult. It's a cult and you it's hard to escape it. And it's still unraveling many of psychological layers that you have within you. And the way you frame the world is based on just that lens. My mother to this day, she, everything that happens with, with uh, the, the environmental crisis that we're going through, um, the war uh, with Russia, uh, what is happening uh, with all the natural disasters and uh, the state of the affairs of the world today, she says this is all part of the prophecy. This is all a part of God's plan. And that I can't take her out of that. She is looking for this north, the north king. The north king, king of the north, uh, is said supposedly it's Russia and in the USA. And there are prophecies in Daniel, in Isaiah, in Revelations about the north king. And I, I really did not, I, I used to feel a lot of fear about Armageddon. And I don't feel this way anymore. I now get more worried about the war as itself. I, I don't like uh, 
discussing and arguing with my mother about it, nor will I discuss and argue with other Jehovah's Witnesses. It is what it is. But if anyone wants to enter in intellectual debates, my good and close friend, Jake Schmidt, who's had uh, also his, he left the organization. We left around the same, I left first and then he left <laughs> uh, after me. Uh, we both began delving into the background of Jehovah's Witnesses. And he learned a lot. I think he went farther than me in studying and learning about evolution. And Christopher Hitchens was his hero. And just going and delving deep into all of this stuff it was really great. Uh, what I was disheartened was all of the allegations um, by the uh, and 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 the report on Jehovah's Witnesses by the Australian Royal Commission, the ARC. I did not like the lying and deception that Jehovah's Witnesses um, laid out. It was hard to, to, to see how Jehovah's Witnesses were placed among the same category as other religions hiding child abuse. No, that scandal, because mo mostly, notoriously, the Catholic Church has gained a reputation because of it. But Jehovah's Witnesses have... Uh, have had their own scandal and it saddens me uh to know that i know family and friends who are continuing to be members but they don't touch this issue and they should as well as they should all they say though is god will then take matters into his own hands but that doesn't do anything for me what does something for me as i wrote here is what i don't like is their refusal to update child uh abuse policies which at least when i was a jehovah's witness i remember you had to report anything uh to jehovah's witnesses before first before you reported it to the police because if some if you reported something to that a jehovah's witness did it looked bad or wrong and you were smearing God's name or God's organization. And that was all a way of control and damage controlling the things and the scandals and that happened, that had continued to happen, I'm sure. And it's the covering up of child abuse and refusing to release uh, records, which they have been fined for, the organization, as, it, as it's uh, um, for not releasing records is also just the thing that angers me about this religion and they they have a, a headquarters that i went to as a kid i was 13 i think it was my mother took us to nova york and i remember being moved and awed by the bethlites because it's called bethel and their organization but now looking at that time i did not see what i see now which is a bunch of a bunch of abuse on young men that it's they are basically free labor uh for this organization that has uh, millions and billions of dollars from donations around the world around the globe and they don't have they're not taxed in the same way that other 
because they are they are an NGO, they are a religious entity, and they have a lot of money, and they save up as well from all the free labor that they have because young men like myself were told when we were children, uh, when you grow up, you should be a Bethlehite. A Bethlehite is someone that goes and serves at Bethel or the headquarters of a Jehovah's Witness or one of the, like in Mexico, we have a sub uh, uh, department in Mexico. The headquarters being in New York and in Mexico, we have another that you could go serve in as a single young man. Imagine what that does to you as a young man. You are full of hormones and you are young and you're at the prime of your youth and suddenly you are to serve for two, five, seven years and by yourself and not to self-stimulate yourself or just encourage to marry and you might marry into the wrong, with the wrong person. <laughs> and uh, mostly it's encouraged to be these single young men because that way they can use them to work their physical labor uh, and to serve. And I always thought, what a wonderful place to be. Oh, I'll have to chime in with the ticket. Sure, 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 sure. Go ahead, James. Uh, I uh, I loved, I'll put on my specs now, James, so that I can read any question that you want to chime in as you're more than welcome to say anything. I, I think of all of those young men that spent their lives locked up into the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses. So I, I don't know how to uh, feel any more amazement about their charity or their work and their organization because of they just know how to tidy after a, a big, huge assembly, which is what every Jehovah's Witness will tell you, the pride they have. And after leaving an assembly, they always leave uh, a convention clean and immaculate and we're so organized and look at all our volunteers and how wonderful they are as an organization and they criticize any other organization they say you will never see in any organization like ours where they are as organized as clean as prepared as no that doesn't mean you have the truth suddenly it means you have invested a lot of time in trying to uh, sort out who is to do what and that's it and to take full advantage of Free labor. <laughs> Anyhow, back to uh, Lloyd Evans. Please look up Lloyd Evans. Uh, he has the Royal Commission's report on Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a scandal. It's awful. It's it's upsetting. It really made me angry uh, seeing how Jehovah's Witnesses, because they have their own lawyers, Jehovah's Witnesses lawyers lied. Many Jehovah's Witnesses who had professions in, sec in the secular world and then become Jehovah's Witnesses use their skills to then serve in the organization. So if you are a renowned chef or something, you might just go and be flown out to Bethel and be a chef over there. If you are an artist, all of our literature does not have the name of the illustrations that we have in the magazines, but you'll see there uh, the beautiful illustrations that Jehovah's Witnesses have done by artists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witness artists. There's a, there's a great Jehovah's Witness female woman artist what's her name um uh jehovah's witness artist with big eyes anyone see that film uh, called margaret king that that's what it was uh i think it's called uh, big eyes right that film 
Well, Margaret Keane, uh, she was, anyone can go see the film, she was a Jehovah's Witness because she became one later in life. And I remember being at the, in New York uh, and having bought these postcards by uh, Margaret Keane, and then that money gets into the Jehovah's Witness organization. Go look her up. She is a former Jehovah. Well, she is a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not sure if she's still painting to this day. She might still be. Um, she's a famous artist, as well as other artists, right? Prince, Michael Jackson, Selena Quintanilla, uh, which are the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know the other celebrities, but you know there are a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses who were famous at some point. Um, and I, I just I pity the men that go out there and use their professions to serve and are trapped in a bubble and they live their lives out there and many of them stay. Some of them leave and they go out and serve in other congregations around the world. Um, but it saddens me to know that a lot of them are still there and use their skills they were hired for. Back to what made me upset though, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses who were lawyers in court, lying in court, which really angered me. Uh, and seeing some of Lloyd Evans' uh, YouTube videos. Again, Lloyd Evans, look up your Lloyd Evans. Uh, really made me angry. Uh, look up jwfacts.com. I recently watched a video. Uh, who was it? It was a Jehovah's Witness, former Jehovah's Witness who was an elder. And, and, uh, and really moved me because he has a lot of respect for the people that he served for, but he felt he was also lying to them. James, if you have anything to say, please tell me. Uh, you can always share something uh, with your Catholic take on on this. Uh, again, I, I, I'm here to uh, criticize my own <laughs> upbringing because I have a lot of hurt and psychological damage that it was done over the years from growing up as a Jehovah's Witness. And as I'm looking for a place to wrap up, because that's what I, I will be doing, anyone can comment uh, if you'd like to, and I'll read your comment uh, out loud. I, I don't know that the question, do you regret, or do you, do you regret having lived, or, or had you wished another life? Who knows? I, you cannot answer that question. And what does it matter just answering that question? Because we live the life we are living in today. And maybe those events led me to where I am at today, who I was. And I just posted an Instagram story on pictures that I had found from an album in that closet back there. And I just looked at myself and I thought, my goodness, you know, who I did not know who I was then. I still sometimes don't know. Why. I'm more clear who I am now. But at that time, I was, you know, and imagine being so gullible, so indoctrinated in a cult and then having left it at 18 years old uh i felt empty i felt empty and i i just didn't have i it was discipline that i had in the religion and suddenly i didn't have a place to be and i felt a hollow in here and i hitchhiked i left and hitchhiked my way across the USA. And uh, and then I came back 
And then someone had told me, shared with me about Vipassana meditation, which I recommend, which people might also say is another cult. I've, I've not joined their meetings or whatever, but I take on the practice and I do like it served me. I did a 10 day course, 10 hours of meditation in silence, listening to talks by S. Goenka, and I loved it and it filled me. And to this day, I meditate. It's what has helped me to survive in this world, to have a peace of mind, to be able to listen to the news and to live my life richly. And I live my life day by day, just enjoying what I have, the little things. There's a good podcast um, in This American Life that I can share. It's called On the Delights. And I don't know why I like it. I mean, This American Life on is an episode on delights let's see and i really recommend it because it's the little things in life that make us happy you know uh delights the show of the lights there it is so if you look up the show of the lights this american life uh it's stories about i'll read here it says in these dark times we attempt some radical counter programming a show made up entirely of stories about delight and i ask you what delights you what delights me is seeing uh, the flowers bloom <laughs> in my garden. Uh, what delights me is watching October, the cat that lives with me, uh, sleep. <laughs> what delights me is watching my loved ones eat the food that I make for them and they enjoy it. What delights me is reading a passage from literature that I love. What delights me is looking out my window and looking at the sky watching my neighbors interact, looking at my nephew. And these are the things I enjoy mindfully. And that's what Vipassana practice has done for me. So I went from one religion to suddenly a spiritual practice. And then I involved myself in another cult, which is called the left. That's another story. <laughs> so that I think is where I'll wrap it up. I, I, uh, I hope I shared enough. I'm a little bit nervous having to release this because I know I have my Jehovah's Witness community somewhat still in relationship with me because of the social media and some former ex Jehovah's Witness youth that I grew up with are still tied to me through either Facebook or on Instagram or just in life. And they have seen me post uh, stuff from what's left. So I imagine that they'll then send it to their family and their community. Someone will see it. And uh, if they are watching, I want everyone to know. I have no hate or desire to be in distance with people who were a significant part of my life in that Jehovah's Witness world. And I'm willing to have a relationship if they wish to talk to me. but. I don't plan to return. And uh, and I know the rule for Jehovah's Witnesses is if you are a Jehovah's Witness and you are to follow and abide by it, you are not to involve yourself with worldly people and much less involve yourself with an apostate, which is what I am, apparently, I think. I'm not sure. That's not how I label myself, but I know many Jehovah's Witnesses will label me as such. 
because of the things that I've just mentioned, the questioning of the year 1914, the questioning of the year 1919 that are prophetic times to Jehovah's Witness doctrine, to uh, blasting them out for their child abuse scandals, to the covering up of uh, records and uh, as well as pointing towards their retraction on their predictions of the end of times. So if that makes me an apostate and sharing jwfacts.com and talking about <laughs> Lloyd Evans, who is a character in himself and who also did a, a stunt at, as a, at the Warwick Lake protest, uh, where they went back and did a protest. I love Lloyd Evans. And uh, if that makes me an apostate, then I'm sorry. You know, I, 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 for a religion that says to be of love, you know, a lot of the things that they say about women, by the way, and I, here I'm trying to conclude, but if I just read this one part, Watchtower's view, the Watchtower is the name of their society. That's even their, I would say, even the corporation name. Um, the Watchtower view of women, this is from the jwfacts.com. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a patriarchal, patriarchal organization where women are to view men as their head. What's our articles continue to describe the role of women in their terms reminiscent of mid 20th century US American culture. Whilst directing husbands to be loving of their wives, the results of a male dominant religion can be tragic with three areas particularly worthy of consideration, domestic violence, child abuse, and rape. Why? It's discouraged to divorce in Jehovah's Witness religion. The other thing that I did not like uh, that I had read about was how Jehovah's Witnesses see the origins of the black race. There was a question that came up in one of the magazines uh, called The Golden Age, because at the time, you know, there are two magazines that Jehovah's Witnesses distribute, which is called the, um, in Spanish is Atalaya Despertad. In English, it's called um, The Watchtower and Awake. And at that time, the one of the magazines was called The Golden Age. And in The Golden Age, the, there was a question, and this was brought up, and it's, the question is, is there anything in the Bible that reveals the origin of the Negro? The answer of Jehovah's Witnesses is, it is generally believed that the curse which Noah pronounced upon Canaan, Canaan was the origin of the black race. Certain, but this is generally believed. This is not like the truth, right? Certain it is that when Noah said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he, shall he be unto his brethren. He pictured the future of the colored race. They have been, this is now, this is not the scripture. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying. The Negro have been and are a race of servants. But now in the dawn of the 20th century, we are all coming to see this matter of service in its true light and to find that the only real joy in life is in serving others, not blessing them. I guess that makes any difference. They continue to say, there is no servant in the world as good as a good colored servant. <laughs> and the joy that he gets from the rendering faithful service is one of the purest joys there is in the world. This is from the Golden Age. Uh, let's see. This is, I think, the uh, 24th of July, 1929. And this is the view that Jehovah's Witnesses have. Have they retracted? Well, I have not seen something that has. They claim to be a religion of tolerance, of 
of accepting and non-discriminatory practices, but this is the view that they have on black people. And I've also mentioned what they, how they view women. And uh, there are more articles you can read. Again, jwfacts.com, uh, you can go into it and compare it with other websites. Uh, it's like uh, Alice in Wonderland Maze, you'll just go into, if it matters for anybody. I know it matters for Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you are a Jehovah's Witness, a former Jehovah's Witness, you can always contact me directly. I have always stated my Instagram, or you can contact the blog on whatsleft.com and you can message me there and I promise to get back to you. I have a lot of sympathy and a lot of, my heart just goes to anybody who was brought up as one because I know it is difficult to remove yourself from that way of thinking, the cult-like mindset that one has. And I feel for people who are still there and want to get out, but psychologically they are chained either by family, community, even economical or whatever reason. But I, I do feel sad by that. Anyhow, um, that I think I will conclude here. I have now gone over some time and I don't want to make this longer than it should be. Thank you for anyone that has stayed with me as long as you have. <laughs> if you have any comments and James, thank you for uh, your, your chat there. I will most definitely uh, uh, respond to anything you want to say to me directly if you wish. Uh, I'm going to conclude here. I appreciate folks uh, for tuning in and Andy will be back next week with me. Uh, so we look forward to that. And Jess will probably be back the week after that. And then after that, I will be in Colombia or in Argentina. I'm not sure just yet. But I, I look forward to having Andy back again because doing this one-time thing is a little challenging. We would love to read the story of your mother and father when you write that book. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this long-awaited book I have. Yes, yes, yes. Let's conclude. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, let's do this. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for streaming in on this live. Uh, What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at What's Left Podcast, uh, What's Left Podcast.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks if you like anything you have heard here, please rate review. Turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. Uh, you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. If you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca. Uh, without co-hosts Jessica and Andy Lipson, uh, Jess's Twitter handle is at jhomi89. And I'm at Don Eduardo Barca for Instagram. And I appreciate everyone listening in. Thank you for this very casual chatter, chat conversation about the story of my Jehovah's Witness life. And we'll see each other next time. All right. Ciao. Good night, everyone.